Author of Hidden History, Crimes and Cover-Ups in American Politics, 1776 to 1963, and Survival of the Richest, Donald Jeffries separates the real from the unreal. Fact from fiction. Fact from fiction. Reverse engineering our manufactured reality. And now, from just outside the swamp-infested Washington, D.C., this is I Protest with Donald Jeffries. And welcome to I Protest. This is Donald Jeffries here with you today, again, right outside the swamp-infested Washington, D.C. Uh, Carrie McDonald is my guest today. I was very impressed. I saw an interview with her um, as to her her attitude towards the schools, uh, something I, I can certainly go on board with. She's a senior education fellow at the Foundation for Economic Opportunity. She hosts the weekly Liberated podcast, the author of uh, several books, including Unschooled, Raising Curious, Well-Educated Children Outside the Conventional Classrooms, a Harvard graduate. Uh, has, she's been in the Wall Street Journal, Newsweek, NPR, all these publications that would never have me. So she's got a, an impressive resume. I, I Carrie, thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, I'm so glad to be here, Don. Thanks for having me. Well, so how did you, you know, how does somebody with your pedigree, I mean, Harvard, you're writing for Forbes, uh, you've been in the Wall Street Journal. How did you become this um, radical critic of the school system? And, and mm-hmm. I guess you're, what, what is the difference between, is there a difference between unschooling and homeschooling? Yeah, so I think there are probably two separate answers there with those questions in terms of my origin story. Uh, I think it began uh, back when I was an undergraduate in college in the late 1990s. I was an economics major, uh, and through that lens of economics and looking at uh, the role of government and markets and so on, I discovered kind of the lack of choice and options that families had in education and sort of this government-run monopoly of schooling. And that was really the first time that I kind of had that perspective. I went to K-12 public schools in the suburbs of Boston and and never really thought much beyond kind of that conventional school system. But then learning through economics of these limited choices imposed largely by government-run schooling made me wonder what else was out there. Uh, So I began exploring kind of alternative education models and homeschooling, which uh, really was still kind of in the margins in the late 1990s. It had only become legally recognized in all 50 states a few years prior by the mid-90s. Uh, so still was very much on the margins, nothing like the mainstream option it's thankfully become. Uh, but I had a chance then to shadow a homeschooling family and really see this contrast between kind of uh, an alternative child-centered learning environment, kind of authentic socialization that this child was having in the wider world around her compared to at the same time, uh, I was exploring some public school classrooms, same age children, and saw, again, age segregated classrooms, conventional standardized curriculum, this top down uh, coercive learning environment that, of course, I had gone through myself, but never really saw that contrast up close until I was able to see what a different way of learning would be like. And so that's what really triggered my interest in education and education policy. I went to graduate school, became increasingly interested in the school choice movement. At the time, this was kind of the turn of the millennium. Um, I was at Harvard, as you mentioned, and if you were interested at all in kind of school choice or alternative learning models, um, then school the, the, really the only place for you was charter schools, which were just kind of starting to uh, hit the mainstream at that time. So I spent some time 
uh, in that area, but still felt like that was still too tied to the conventional system, that there should be more and could be more. Uh, and ultimately, yeah, ended up becoming real advocate for free market education solutions, for homeschooling, for unschooling, for micro schools and self-directed learning centers, and really just uh, creating, you know, the, these sort of this robust ecosystem of education options from which families could choose that would tie with their own preferences. And of course, my preferred preference uh, for our family and what my book is about is non-coercive self-directed education or what is known as unschooling, which can either be uh, a, a version of homeschooling, you know, as sort of a, a much more self-directed non-school at home um, method of homeschooling. But as the book traces, it's also increasingly occurring in these self-directed learning centers and micro schools that also embrace that, that sort of um, Self, self-determination, autonomy, independence for children. Um, that's nothing like what we think of as conventional schools. Well, there, and I, I'm very interested in the concept of unschooling because I'm sure you're aware. I mean, I, I don't see really the only argument against homeschooling at this point, I think, is that fact that unfortunately it's not economically feasible for a lot of people because, you know, with the economy, uh, both parents have to work many times. So it, it's difficult for one of them to be there and be the educator all day. So what... Um, the unschooling thing really interesting because I just tell myself from going to public school and I was a community college dropout, uh, all of my education is, is self-learned. Right. I mean, from reading tons and tons of book, life experience, uh, that kind of thing. I, I don't remember very much of anything of value, I guess, other than, I mean, I, I, I think I could read by the time I went to school or at least somewhat. So maybe that they refined my reading learn basic math, uh, you know, algebra and trigonometry, all that stuff. I mean, how much of that do we remember or do we use? So uh, what what is the argument at this point? What, and we'll, we'll get into obviously the, the lunacy of the public school system now, how it's kind of gravitated in that. But even before that, let's say, you know, when I was in public schools, it was, you could kind of tell, I guess, that most uh, teachers tilted liberal or whatever, but liberal meant something different in those days. But there wasn't this kind of overt agenda that you have now, what would be the argument in today's school system uh, for, for you know, what, what are they advertising? Why should parents, if they can economically keep their kids at home and, and homeschool them or unschool them, which again, I'm fascinated by that concept, uh, what would be the, uh, the, the argument there? What are they using to promote schools over? Why, why would you send your cool kids there? Well, I'll push back just a bit on your kind of first remark about um, affordability with homeschooling. I mean, the national data on homeschooling actually shows that most homeschooling families are um, lower income than average and compared to mm. kind of school children. And we saw even uh, in the fall of 2020, when, of course, there was this mass exodus from government run schools in the wake of school lockdowns, shutdowns, and remote schooling, uh, homeschooling, according to the Census Bureau, more than doubled to more than 11% of the US K-12 school-age population being homeschooled, a, a five-fold increase in the number of Black families choosing homeschooling that year to the point where Black families were uh, overrepresented in the homeschool population compared to their representation in the overall K-12 public school population. So enormous kind of demographic shifts there and a big uh, boost in homeschooling in 2020. And Education Week in the fall of 2020 uh, did their own survey. This came out before the Census Bureau data finding uh, a similar increase. They estimated around 10% homeschooling rate at the time. And they said that the, that the majority, the kind of vast majority of those new homeschoolers were low income. 
Um, so I, I think that there, there may be this misconception that, that homeschooling tends to be for more affluent families, but the data just don't sort of bear that out. Um, and I think increasingly what we find is that, you know, homeschooling is not um, uh, the sort of stereotypical notion. I'm not sure it ever really was, but it's definitely not kind of the stereotype of being at home, having one parent kind of with uh, family, with the children, doing a, a curriculum at the kitchen table. Um, increasingly, you know, homeschooling is really sort of this legal mechanism that enables families to access freedom and flexibility in education for their children. It puts them back in the driver's seat in meaningful ways to really be able to exit from government-run schools and choose something different. And that's where we've seen really this proliferation um, that was occurring pre-2020, but's really skyrocketed since then of micro schools and sort of these pandemic pods or learning pods that sprouted during 2020, often these parent run um, kind of co-learning communities that have evolved into established micro schools um, that often are multi-age, small learning communities with hired educators, typically in commercially leased spaces and uh, are often a fraction of the cost of available private schools. Um, and there are full-time schooling alternatives, even though in many cases, families would be considered homeschoolers, but they could send their kids there up to five days a week if they choose, again, for a fraction of the cost of a typical private school. And in many states, including uh, Florida, where I was just visiting a bunch of these micro-school founders, um, they are, those families are able to access these micro-schools through school choice policies, the Florida scholarship programs um, that make kind of access to these models uh, much more feasible for more families. So I think this idea of homeschooling kind of be a, being a home-centered, uh, mom-centered or mom-driven kind of learning environment yeah. is, is really much more the exception than the rule. Well, if you don't mind, your own personal experience, how, how did you do it? What were, I mean, what did you do? Because you obviously have I assumed, I don't know what you were writing and whatever. So I don't know if you work from home, whatever, what your husband does. But how how did you, if you, you don't mind, how did you handle it in terms of uh, you weren't there, I guess, teaching them eight hours a day or what did you? I, I know lots of homeschool. They have like field trip activities with other homeschoolers and try to get kids to socialize that way. What? How did you um, do it with your own children? Yeah, I mean, uh, when they were little, you know, we spent a lot of time immersed in our community here in Boston, uh, spending a lot of time at libraries and museums and with various homeschool groups and, and activities and so on. And, and then as they, you know, became more independent, kind of got out of early childhood, they attended a self-directed learning center, one of the ones that I write about in my unschooled book. Um, so they were there several days a week. And it was, a, you know, again, a kind of a, a full-time day, or they, they went a few days, not five days, but they could have gone up to five days a week if we had wanted to. And now they're in a, a Sudbury-style school, uh, the Sudbury model of education, which is another one of these uh, self-directed models that I write extensively about in unschooled. So, okay. So what the, uh, do you, do you still have to, as far as I know, don't you have to meet like state accredited? Do they have to pass exams and all that? The homeschool code, do they still have to do that or no? No. So uh, all states homeschooling laws are individual. So some states it's really okay. easy to homeschool. There's no notifications in other states. It's much more challenging and there are more of these regulations and, and state testing requirements and so on. Uh, here in Massachusetts, it's actually not a state uh, statute. It's by individual district. You report to your individual school district, and there's quite a bit of variability there, even at the local level. Um, but you know, most 
uh, sort of methods of homeschooling, including unschooling and self-directed education can be um, practiced in all states and, and families are able to do that. They're able to find ways to, to make it work. Well, tell us about the Foundation for Economic Education. What, what, uh, tell us a little bit about that organization and what, what your position is with it. Yeah, so FEE is the country's oldest libertarian think tank. It was founded in 1946 by Leonard Reed, who is the author of the famous essay, I Pencil, that talks about spontaneous order and the magic of the market and kind of bringing together people all across the world who don't work, who don't know each other, who may not even speak their own language, but in the kind of process of production based on consumer demand and how it's this sort of elegant model. So, uh, you know, we focus on um, spreading the, the message of liberty, individual freedom, free markets, peace, prosperity, entrepreneurship, limited government. Sure. Well, those are, you're out of touch with reality, though, spreading peace and prosperity. That doesn't, <laughs> doesn't fit in well with what I call America 2.0. So if you're, if you're, let's say you're a, you know, you're just, you're just starting out today and, and you, your kids are very young and you're trying to, I mean, what would you, I assume back then you didn't face the madness that we see now. Do you, do you talk and write a lot about it? Cause I, I just, I'm just amazed really that any parents, I mean, my kids are grown, but I, I'm amazed that any parents send their kids to the, the schools that we're seeing now. And, and I, I mentioned to you before we got on air, I, I read today a story about a fifth grade teacher. I forget what state it was that they found out she had a, a hit, a kill list of students and staff. I mean, what, what kind of, I, I, this is amazing to me that they're, do they vet these people or are they just, I'm sure you've seen the TikTok videos, the Instagram videos, and just kind of the, I, I don't like to judge people, but they look unstable, a lot of these people do. And you wonder about what are they doing teaching, especially young children? What, what's your impression of that? Yeah, I mean, I guess, I, again, I'm st there's a lot to be upset about right now in the, in the state of American public education, but I'm really much more concerned about creating the conditions in which education entrepreneurship can thrive so that we can build low-cost, accessible models so that families can more easily exit, right? I mean, we have compulsory schooling statutes that require parents to send their children to a local assigned district school unless they can uh, opt out, whether that's homeschooling or some kind of private school or micro school. And so I think we need to continuously focus on school choice policies. Uh, ideally, we focus on eliminating and loosening compulsory schooling statutes, uh, but it seems more feasible at this point to focus on school choice policies that decentralize education funding and enable education dollars to follow families instead of going to these bureaucratic school systems. That gives families so many more options to opt out of an assigned district school. And I, you know, I guess, again, I'm sort of optimistic because I do think that the COVID disruption really shined a light for a lot of families on what was actually happening in their children's yes. classrooms through Zoom school. Yes. Um, in fact, my, my latest Forbes article featured um, one of these micro school founders in the Fort Lauderdale area in Florida who's a, been a certified teacher for over 15 years uh, in a public school. And um, she, you know, sort of gained custody of her nephew and um, thought that he was a little bit behind, but didn't quite realize just how behind he was in school until the spring of 2020, when in Zoom school, she realized just how much she was struggling and, and, and was sort of disillusioned by what she saw in his third grade classroom that he was operating on a kindergarten grade level and not third grade. 
And so she took matters in her own hands that summer of 2020. And like many uh, parents and teachers across the country created a, a, a micro school. And now she has um, over 20 kids and four teachers uh, in this beautiful, warm and welcoming micro school space that again, a lot of families are able to access through these scholarship programs, these school choice programs in Florida. So I just look at let's build these alternatives. So more and more families recognize they have choices. I think when families do realize that they they have options, they exercise that choice and, and seek those options. And we need to encourage more education entrepreneurs to build them. Well, I agree with you about the, uh, the, the Zoom classes, because essentially the, the, the lockdown forced homeschooling on everyone. Uh, to some degree. And uh, the parents for the first time, I guess a, a lot of parents didn't pay as much attention to what was going on in school as I did, I know. Uh, and they were uh, shocked, I think, to see some of this right. stuff. And, uh, you know, this this is, uh, I think this is what's the basis. I live uh, next door to Loudoun County, Virginia. That's where I used to work. And uh, that that's kind of the epicenter of these protests you see at the school board meetings. And I, I think they were, do you agree that I think they were precipitated by what so many parents saw during those Zoom classes. Yeah, I mean, I think parents didn't like the curriculum in many cases. They didn't like the ways in which uh, teachers were interacting or speaking with students. Um, they probably got a firsthand look in a lot of communities at, at what the curriculum actually was and didn't like that. I've talked to parents who say that that was a real defining moment for them in deciding to choose other options. I think that's why in many cases we saw that explosion in the number of homeschooling families uh, in 2020 to 2021. And interestingly, even as schools reopened last fall, the fall of 2021 with full-time in-person learning, the homeschooling rate stayed at record highs. The Associated Press did a study in, in the spring where they looked at 18 states for which they had data, and they found that uh, homeschooling rate had increased 63% during that first you know, COVID year 2020 to 2021, and it had only dipped by about 17% the following year. So still well above, uh, you know, it's record highs, well above pre-pandemic levels. What, what do you think, especially as a libertarian, isn't there, uh, I'm surprised we don't hear the argument more. I guess you used to hear it maybe back in the summer. Actually used to hear it maybe from people who didn't have kids. And they say, you know, why am I paying for schools when I don't have kids? Uh, but isn't that argument, especially with record levels of homeschooling, why, why should people pay taxes that aren't using the public school, especially if they object to the way they're being run? Is, it, is that becoming more and more of a mainstream libertarian argument? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think um, many, if not most libertarians would say that our ideal education model is a fully privatized education system, just like we have fully privatized grocery stores and, and food is uh, as much, if not more, probably quite a bit more of an essential need than education. Um, but what we do have in grocery stores are um, access to food stamps for families so that they don't go hungry. And I think that's really where there's sort of this compromise in, in terms of libertarians and others uh, who support school choice would say that that's uh, at least a mechanism of allowing access to education funding, but not um, having that assigned to a specific place. I mean, just imagine if we had 
um, grocery stores that were assigned by zip code where we were required to shop there, where there were local grocery boards determining <laughs> what was going to be in our store. I mean, that yeah. would lead to mass discontent. And I think that's actually what, what we're seeing in school boards across the country. You mentioned Loudoun County. That's a perfect example, right, where we see these school board wars and frustrated parents. And it's the it's the um, it's the inherently political nature of government-run schooling that creates this conflict, it creates this battle of wills. You have to fight in that kind of system to have your perspective, your worldview accepted and that someone else will lose. And so the advocates of school choice will say the way to more peace and harmony is to adopt and embrace school choice policies that, that really, um, you know, move away from that coercion and allow families to decide where they want their children to be educated uh, without having the government involved. Yeah, because I mean, there, there are millions, I, I, I still think a majority of the country uh, objects to the indoctrination that's going on in public schools because they are, I mean, it's so overt. And I, I don't know if you saw, I think it was in San Diego, uh, Tucker Carlson had her on the other night where uh, she got up and, and objected to this uh, drag queen, not, yeah, like a drag strip show or something that's coming out so popular for little kids for unknown reasons. Uh, family friendly, they described it. And she and she just kind of chewed the school board out, very courageous. And as usual, I, I, I get depressed when I don't see a bunch of people standing up behind these people that are willing to stand out, speak out and say, yeah, that's right. They just kind of sit there on their hands. And isn't it? Isn't that why this is happening? Because of apathy. They're courageous people that do stand up. And a lot of times we saw the guy, I think it was last year, that got arrested when he objected to uh, the fact that, I guess, a transgender student had raped his daughter in a bathroom. I think that was in Loudoun County as well. And I don't think anything happened to him. He went to another school. But I was just shocked at the number of parents who, because he was roughed up by the guards in court and everything. And I don't understand why everybody didn't jump up and try to protect him, but they didn't. So isn't that the problem? Maybe so. I, I really can't argue with the libertarian view that you probably should split and go after yourself because I don't know that you can can overcome that because the people that are at least the, the majority of the parents we're seeing that are in the schools. I mean, how how do you not object to that? Something like that is is that bizarre? This uh, I, I also read recently that in Montgomery County, Maryland, which is not far from me, big school system, uh, another wealthy area, that the number of kids identifying as transgenders, students, had risen 520% in two years. So I think we're going to be seeing that too. So that's what terrifies me, the world that's recreating by this indoctrination through school. But I, I, I'm kind of all over the place there, but I think you hope we can get the gist of what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, there's, there's a role for both voice and exit, right? And so I admire families, uh, again, from kind of all political persuasions who are trying to uh, have their views known in local school board meetings and push back against policies with which they disagree. But again, it's it's sort of the nature of these school boards and of government schooling more broadly that you will have this battle of wills and you will have winners and losers. And it's, I think, uh, a real factor in our increasing cultural polarization. I think schools are a real instigator of that conflict. And so the, the antidote to that is exit, right? It's providing opportunities for families to find uh, the best educational fit for their child that matches their preferences, that align with their values, whatever those are. Yeah, exactly. So how, now, I don't know how old your kids are. Are they out? I mean, how are they still involved in it? How, how is it? How, like, for instance, 
is it more difficult when a kid becomes a teenager? Do they kind of chafe at the bit that they're not around kids their own age all day in school? Is it harder to keep them unschooled or homeschooled at that point than, than little kids? Well, again, my um, three, so I have my four kids, they're eight to almost 16. Um, okay. And my three younger ones are in a, a Sudbury school, which is one of the models I talk about in Unschooled, mm-hmm. which is a, a purely kind of self-directed school. So they're, they're there with, uh, you know, gaggles of other kids. Uh, yeah. And then my older daughter does an online um, program through Arizona State University, ASU Prep Digital. Um, that's sort of an excellent program that kind of supplements uh, her uh, homeschooling and unschooling. And she's also involved in quite a few activities. So that's their experience. But I will say, you know, today's homeschoolers, again, are, are much more connected. The sort of stereotype of homeschooling being isolated and kids kind of sitting at home alone, not having any friends was never true. And it's certainly not true today. I mean, again, we not only have these learning centers and these micro schools and programs like that, um, but we have, um, you know, companies, organizations, nonprofits throughout uh, our communities that sort of cater to homeschoolers. You know, there's so many homeschoolers these days that it, uh, you know, there's there's quite a bit of offerings for them. In fact, again, I'll go back to my recent trip that I've been profiling in South Florida. And I went to one event that was put on by an organization I highly recommend called Surf Skate Science um, that runs um, kind of science-based programs for homeschoolers and microschools in South Florida. And the event that I went, they had over 100 kids. So this idea, again, that, that homeschoolers are isolated was never really true, certainly not true now. There's so many resources for them. Um, so any concerns that you know, listeners might have about, about that, that should not be uh, one of the reasons to, um, th- to sort of think that homeschooling might not work for you. It's probably just the opposite. You'll probably be spending more time out of your home than in it. Well, it's interesting because I have some of those, obviously, those stereotypes in my mind, too. But one thing I have always heard, and I imagine it's probably more true than ever, considering the direction the schools are taking, is that I imagine that anyone not in the schools, if, if as far as they still measure that, I don't know. But uh, don't don't overall, don't the statistics show that people that are not in school, kids that are not in school, tend to end up better, better educated? Yeah, so one of the um, sort of best pieces of research, I think, comes from Lindsay Burke at the Heritage Foundation. She did a literature review of research on homeschooling and found positive outcomes for homeschoolers. Um, Other research has sort of backed that up. I think of Daniel Hamlin, a professor at the University of Oklahoma, who's done a lot of research on homeschoolers. He finds that homeschoolers have higher rates of what he calls cultural capital. Uh, They're more involved in their communities. They're Uh, two to three times more likely to visit a library, a museum, a historic site, a cultural event, a zoo and a bookstore in a month than a public school student. So they're much more immersed in their communities that there's that authentic socialization that occurs just from being around the people places and things in our, in our communities uh, and not sort of that that static um, age segregated learning environment that we find in conventional schools. And some other interesting research coming out of unschoolers, these again would be people who learn in more of a self-directed way without formal curriculum or without f- formal imposed curriculum, I should say. Um, this could occur either as a me- method of homeschooling or in one of these self-directed learning centers or, or schools like the Sudbury model. Um, The research on those students finds that not only do they have no problem 
um, going into higher education and adjusting well there and doing well there if they choose. Um, but they're actually more likely that to become entrepreneurs in adulthood, uh, often engaging in work that's tied to their interests and passions that they developed in childhood and adolescence because they had that time to really figure out what they liked, what they were good at, and, and build a business around it. Well, some of us used to argue in terms of when we were trying to reform the schools uh, decades ago, we used to talk about uh, that not every people are going to have different interests. So kids should be allowed, I thought, you know, to pursue the kind of interest they want. You used to have DE, the direct education, where kids would go to work during the day and like become auto mechanics and stuff. I, I knew friends that did that. But I always thought they should have had like, uh, for somebody like me, I was always literary and creative. They should have had some kind of direction where you could go and just pursue that to your heart's content and mathematical people, uh, you know, science, scientific, whatever. But schools don't do that. They make you take the same curriculum you have to take. I mean, I hated math and science <laughs> and I dreaded, you know, I don't want to take trigonometry. I hate this. You know, this is, and I'm never going to use it. I remember, but, but so these self-directed learning centers, describe what they have. I assume teachers there, How what, what's it like at a self-directed learning center, typical one? Yeah, so I mean, the, the, the premise of self-directed education or unschooling is really the this idea, frankly, that what you've talked about is that instead of trying to shape people, uh, we should let people shape themselves. And that was an idea that was popularized by John Holt, who was a well-known educator. He was the person who uh, coined the term unschooling, was an ambassador for uh, homeschooling in its early days. He wrote best-selling books in the 1960s, How Children Fail and How Children Learn. Uh, and he really, you know, made that point that, you know, we need to allow kind of maximum freedom for children, um, you know, figure out what their interests and passions are and help connect those interests and passions to available resources, but do that in uh, as with as much freedom as possible um, without sort of this coercive model of saying, yes, in you know, 11th grade, you need to learn trigonometry. And, and how much do you really remember, Don, of your trigonometry class, right? <laughs> but some people, like my older daughter, she wants to be a math, you know, she wants to study math and go to graduate school and and, uh, and that's her passion. So she's absolutely yeah. excited about trigonometry. So I yeah. think you're absolutely right is we need to allow children the freedom to explore what their interests are, connect them to resources. And, and I'll, I'll just sort of add to that. I think that, that this model of kind of self-directed education, and this isn't new, you know, I mean, it has its origins uh, that I trace a little bit in, in the Unschooled book back to kind of the, the countercultural times of the 1960s and the free school movement then and that, that uh, is, is really um, parts of it have really um, endured to today. But, you know, I, I think it's more important than ever to think about these kind of uh, non-coercive self-directed models when increasingly humans are uh, competing with robots, right? And that's, right. and we have to think about, you know, what makes, what distinguishes human intelligence from artificial intelligence? And it's things like curiosity, creativity, originality, ingenuity, and entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, and yet what do conventional schools do? They crush those things, right? They want you to be obedient, not original. They want you to conform, not be creative. Uh, and so it's all the more important today that we are encouraging that creativity and that originality in, in students so that they can uh, outperform those robots. Yeah, and and I think I, I I'm just amazed that the that the school systems they're they're uh, they won't 
self they won't examine themselves at all and they have such an agenda but by any objective standard they're they're failing miserably if the objective is to educate children uh even by the standards of you know and, and i hated standardized tests and all that. i thought that was stupid too when they started going in that direction and the teachers you know when my kids were in school i used to go in there all the time I was very involved and that's why none of this you know, if I had a trace of any of this crazy critical race theory of transgenderism, you would have seen me on some viral videos on YouTube at the, at the school board. So they weren't doing that then. It hadn't been that long ago. But by any standards there, uh, the, you, you look at the literacy rates, especially in the big cities where like, you know, 20% of the students, uh, you know, are, are at, at, at a, an adult reading level or less than that, probably in some cases, Baltimore, places like that. So they're, I don't know what they're doing in the schools, but they are indoctrinating apparently now. But by any standard, they're not educating. So at least we have come a long way with homeschools because, I, you know, I, I remember I think it was John Stringer was the first notable homeschooler back in the late 70s. And he was shot probably by the government. He was shot in the back when he was, he was picking up his mail one day. He was the first advocate I know of for homeschooling. And that's how, you know, they, they tended to demonize anybody as like an anti government tax rebel or whatever that wanted to be a homeschooler in those days. And now it's obviously, as you say, it's become more and more mainstream, but the system is so broken. And, but it, it seems as if the people, especially the teachers you see in those TikTok videos, they're clinging to it, but they don't seem like they're clinging to it as educators. This is like a, an extension of social media and they have an agenda, but I, by any competent, and, you know, liber, libertarianism is about, you know, comp competing, Right. So if you look at the, if, if you put the schools, the public schools in the marketplace, uh, you know, could they possibly compete? I don't think so. Well, and the irony is, again, that even though, uh, especially the, the latest NAEP scores that show kind of the learning loss over the past couple of years, um, but you're right, more generally just sort of stagnant standardized test scores, if we use that as a measure, which is what the conventional schools use themselves, so we can uh, evaluate them against their own metrics. Um, but if you look at that compared to the spending uh, that we've seen in education and government schools um, over the past half century, it's astronomical. Uh, without yeah. getting these phenomenal results. And I think that's one of the reasons why we see record high taxpayer support for school choice policies, again, for education funding going to families, where um, the most recent survey data out of um, Real Clear Education finds about three quarters of American taxpayers now support school choice policies. And we've seen some major school choice policy wins in states across the country, especially over the past couple of years, Arizona this summer, passing the country's first universal education savings account program that allows all families in Arizona to have access to 90% of the state allocated portion of education funding. It's about $6,500 per student uh, in the state of Arizona. And they can use that towards educational expenses that could be tuition at a conventional private school or a micro school or a learning pod or homeschooling materials or technology, um, educational therapies, tutoring, and so on. So it really is another catalyst, I think, for families to be able to take back control of their children's education from government bureaucrats and find just the right fit for their children, both in terms of their child's uh, unique learning needs and interests, as well as their own kind of personal values as a family. Uh, Carrie, what do you think of Bessie DeVos? There was a question you see on the screen there, somebody talking about her. What, what was your impression of her? She was a little different. I, I, didn't, I don't know what you thought of her. 
Yeah, you know, interestingly, I didn't know much about her, but I recently read her book um, called Hostages No More, which talks about kind of this parent empowerment and this focus on uh, her role in the U.S. Department of Education. And I was particularly struck by um, how limited she was to make a lot of changes there, just given the kind of administrative state that existed, that she was really unable to do a lot of the things that she wanted to do in terms of um, reducing the size and scope of the U.S. Department of Education and of government more generally. So, uh, so you know, an insightful book I'd recommend others read. I don't know if you can see that on the screen or not. Veruca Salt, uh, she's talking. She she brings up a good point that, uh, especially with the autism, uh, the incredible prevalence of autism now and LD and things like that, uh, it, it's not easy for some teachers. I, I, I don't defend teachers very often. What do you think of her point there that there's a lot of out-of-control students? And I especially imagine in the inner cities where you know, almost no one's learning anything, I it must be really hell to attempt to teach in those because you're, you're dealing with lots of kids from dysfunctional families. Yeah, I think it's a huge issue. And again, I'm encouraged to see that a lot of these micro schools uh, whose founders are very often former public school teachers, as I mentioned earlier, are creating micro schools that gear ex you know, specifically to children with learning disabilities or with autism. Uh, with behavioral issues. And so again, it, it's this decentralization of education that I think is so critical. It's these bottom-up solutions that are evolving from educators who've been in the classroom and see that a one-size-fits-all kind of cookie-cutter government school doesn't work for most kids, and especially not kids who might be neurodivergent or have other learning disabilities. And so they're going off and building their own solutions, and families are increasingly uh, demanding these. Well, how, speaking of that, like how, how in terms of uh, like these uh, these learning centers you're talking about, do they what do they how do they deal with a child that says uh, or do kids like that go there that there maybe has uh, severe Asperger's or is really, you know, kind of far on the autism spectrum? Yeah, I mean, again, a lot of the, the schools, the micro schools that are being created are geared to, you know, specifically to that population. Um, so they would have teachers who are trained and who, who want to open a micro school because they realize that these kids are not being well served in district schools and they want to provide other options. Um, so I think we're seeing that a lot. And then you will see, um, especially the smaller size, the more personalized learning uh, that exists, that's sort of characteristic of these micro schools can often enable kids who might be um, have some learning disable, disabilities or not be kind of conforming well to a conventional classroom, they're able to flourish in a smaller learning community with that kind of one-on-one -on -one attention and that personalized learning without those pressures of these big kind of bureaucratic institutions. And so uh, again, I think these, these bottom-up, often teacher and parent-driven um, uh, options are really catching on. What do, uh, have you, I mean, I, I wrote a book, Bullyocracy, that was very critical of teachers and school systems. Um, I, I, you know, I, haven't, I haven't heard from very many teachers that approved of it or, uh, what, do you hear from any educators that know of your work and, and, you know, just kind of cuss you out or just say, you know, what do you, how dare you or try to defend themselves or do you hear, or I know there's, there are internal critics of people that, that don't like the system either. I just wonder, do you hear from anybody inside the educational establishment? Well, I think it's, I mean, I hear from teachers, entrepreneurs, like people who are who are leaving the system. In fact, my entire unschooled book 
almost all of the education entrepreneurs I profile there who went on to create self-directed learning centers or self-directed schools were former public school classroom teachers who just became completely disillusioned by what they were seeing in public schools and knew that they could do better. And I think we're, we're seeing that even in a kind of um, turbocharge now with this micro school movement of teachers leaving the classroom to create these new models. So I don't think it's the teachers. I think teachers feel, many teachers feel incredibly stifled in the classroom. They also don't feel the ability to be creative uh, in these increasingly standardized classrooms, just in the same way that their students are being, their creativity is being crushed as well. And so they're, they're, I think uh, school choice and certainly this entrepreneurship that we're seeing is beneficial to teachers. So I think it's really more the teachers unions um, that yes. are probably more um, opposed to competition uh, as they should be, I suppose, because this is a real threat to the government system of schooling. And, uh, and parents are awakened to that too. I mean, I think that was another sort of silver lining from the COVID disruption is that parents were able to see very clearly that it was teachers unions that were delaying school reopenings or that were pushing for remote learning. And in fact, there's now been journal articles and academic research to back this up to show that it was teacher union influence even more than you know virus spread or any other kind of public health metrics uh, that were keeping schools closed longer. Do we have statistics on, because uh, I, I think it'd be interesting to know um, if any child that was unschooled or homeschooled is ends up being a, an adult who is not literate. Is I mean, do we have any adult illiterates that come out of this homeschool system? I, I would say probably not. Am I wrong there? I don't know. I haven't, I haven't seen any, uh, there's certainly not widespread indications of that. I think in fact, the opposite is likely true. Yeah. Um, that to your earlier point, if we look at the literacy rates in government schools, they're horrific and especially yeah. in many communities. Um, but when you kind of surround children with literacy rich environments and enable them to kind of learn at their own pace and you're not pushing them to read in kindergarten the way government schools now do, there's this expectation of learning to read in kindergarten, five-year-olds, some five-year-olds just aren't ready for that. But then, of right. course, they internalize this idea from a young age that they are incapable of learning to read. Uh, and right. it, it really, I think, threatens their ability to become lifelong readers and to love to read when you kind of internalize these messages in early childhood. Um, so if anything, I think the opposite is probably true. And then again, the kind of data yeah. that we do have about homeschoolers more generally shows uh, positive academic and social outcomes. Well, I just think it's amazing that if you look at, uh, I'm sure you've heard the, the McGuffey readers from like the late 1800s or something, they've gone to look to them and they're just, you know, <laughs> they're too complex for most college graduates in many cases. I mean, and I think you've probably seen that where they have like an average eighth grade exam from some school in 1870 and, you know, like 1% of adults today can pass it or whatever. And so it looks like they obviously got a more, now of course, not everybody you know, probably not everybody was educated. Lots of people weren't in, in those days, but uh, they, they did go to school. They could go to school. They got a much different education than we have now. So how, I don't understand how a, an institution can pride itself on backsliding that far where you go. I don't know what the literacy rates were 50 years ago, but I, I doubt very seriously they were anywhere near what they are now. So it just seems to me they're failing miserably, but the same establishment that props up so much other corruption, they just dig in and, you know, thank a teacher and all that stuff. I mean, I, when I was writing Bullyocracy, 
I couldn't find any negative quotes on teachers, at least through searching. It was very hard. The, the, the teachers unions, you say, so this, this is, I admire what you're doing, but it can't be easy because it's you're up against a very powerful a monolithic thing here. That 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 te- the schools are just you know it's, it's all indoctrinated in our society. You know, hug a teacher, love a teacher. Teachers are underpaid and all that kind of stuff. And even though they have summers off, and I I don't know if you ever watched Norm Macdonald, but Norm Macdonald had a great take on teachers, and he brought it up over and over again because I guess they were calling themselves heroes. And he even had a teacher heckling him. It's, it's, you can watch it online. It's one of the great comedy skits I've ever seen because he handled it like a champion. You know, he just, because he kept saying, you, you're, you're, you really think you're a hero, don't you? I mean, and she was arguing back with him and he kept saying, you know, you're not a hero. I mean, I, I don't know if you've seen that, but if you haven't, you should. But, uh, and again, I'm all over the place. So no, but, you can respond. <laughs> yeah. I'm, no, I mean, I, I think it, I think it's again important to separate kind of teachers from, teacher unions and bureaucracies and institutions, right? Because at least the, the teachers that I'm frequently profiling and meeting with who are starting these micro schools and these learning centers, they get it. I mean, they realize what is happening with the public schools. They're the first ones in many cases to criticize what's going on there. And they're happy to now be a part of the solution. So, you know, I think that that's a hopeful sign um, that we have this kind of entrepreneurial spirit alive and well, um, and that teachers are really rising to meet parent demand for more options. You know, you talk about literacy rates. One of the, the chapters in my unschooled book really traces the history of compulsory education and compulsory schooling. And I yeah. think things really, you know, started to go downhill beginning in 1852 when Massachusetts, where I am, passed the country's first compulsory school attendance law. Prior to that, literacy rates were quite high. Of course, as you say, um, slaves weren't allowed to be taught to read and women were you know, literate in some cases and so on, just due to some kind of government coercion and, and structures there. Um, but there was sort of large literacy rates for the general population that was able and, and uh, legally allowed to um, be educated. And, uh, and, and, we, and there was an education system then that was quite diverse. It was a, kind of this constellation of um, local public schools, private schools, charity schools. Um, there was apprenticeships. Of course, homeschooling was the default. Yeah. Uh, And it was this really kind of diverse and broad education landscape. And beginning in 1852, now all of a sudden, the state takes full control of education. Now parents are required for the first time under a legal threat of force to send their children to common schools that were purportedly secular, but were, of course, heavily Protestant, reflecting the kind of dominant Protestant cultural ethos of the time with Protestant teachers and texts. And so a lot of families rebelled. I mean, it reminds me again of the kind of some of the school board wars that we see today, where you had a lot of Irish Catholic parents at the time who said, we're not sending our kids to these, again, purportedly secular, but obviously Protestant schools. We're going to create our own system of parochial schools. And they did just that. And we had this kind of uh, thriving parochial Catholic school system um, and that and even over the past couple of years, Catholic schools have seen an, seen an enrollment boost in many cities uh, because they were more likely to be responsive to parents' needs. Doug is talking about Indian boarding schools, a model for indoctrination abuse. What do you know about that? I don't know much. <laughs> we, we have audiences here that they, they, they know more than they most of the time. Uh, White Wolf says I was in the public school system back in the 80s. It was a wasteland back then. Yeah, you know, I... I I said the same thing. I don't, 
I was just bored most of the time. I I, I didn't feel, you know, <clears throat> I didn't feel there was an agenda really, but it just was boring. You know, you were trying right. so hard to stay awake in class and you'd like it when the, they would show a movie because then you start nodding off and they couldn't see you nodding off and everything. And that was, <clears throat> at least that was my experience. But uh, yeah. I, I, I just, you know, it, what about private schools? And you mentioned Catholic schools. Uh, my sisters went to Catholic school. By the time I came along, they uh, couldn't afford it anymore. But um, I, generally speaking, uh, private schools tend to have a better record than public schools. But how, how do private schools match up against uh, no schooling or homeschooling? Well, I mean, again, private schools are accountable to their consumers, right? To their paying customers. Right. So they have to be accountable. That's why we saw private schools reopen for full-time in-person learning in many places in the fall of 2020 when public schools remained closed in those same places for extended periods of time because they had to be responsive to families' needs or they would shut down. Um, uh, and so I think that's, again, where we want to, to see this kind of robust, marketplace of private education options, especially low cost private education options like these micro schools that are a fraction of the cost, often one quarter or a fifth of the cost of uh, other traditional private schools in local areas. And again, if we have school choice policies, it brings the, that cost down even further. And, I, and again, homeschooling, unschooling, all of that is just a part of private education. It's just another method. If you see it on the screen, John Bassigalon, that's very interesting. He says, my wife retired from 35 years as a public school teacher and guidance counselor in Antelope Valley, California. She was making $140,000 a year, working nine months a year. Uh, her pension is a little over $100,000 a year. I, I mean, that that's what, you know, I think people do realize that not only they're not underpaid, right. you know, when we compared to the general public at large, you know, uh, and uh, they are—they have great benefits. They have maybe the most powerful union outside of the major league baseball players, or something outside of that. But in the working world, so that's interesting. Is that I—I—I I, I, I didn't realize. I mean, that's so that's and and John is you know, he's yeah. obviously benefiting from it. I'm assuming unless unless yeah. you're maybe and you're not with if, your wife anymore. But <laughs> and if you think about most normal people, how much would you have to save? to be spitting off $100,000 a year in your retirement, right? I mean, it's just, uh, I think you're absolutely right that teachers are definitely not underpaid. No, and it's just, and when you see that, but again, that's the, but you could say that about any issue because the the side that is, is running thing, there's only one side that's, I, mean, I I'm no conservative, I'm a populist, but, uh, and I have a lot of libertarian in me as well, but uh, that side is very seldom allowed access there. We have platforms like this, but, uh, you know, we're never going to be able to go on CNN or Fox News, really, to, to debate much of this. But uh, certainly, I, what, we have, what do you think of Tucker Carlson? I think he does a pretty good job of presenting these issues. He's about the only one that I know in mainstream media. Has, has, has he ever contacted you? He seemed like you'd be a good guest on his oh, show. Oh, that's nice for you to say. No, he's never contacted me. I, I, I don't oh, follow him too much, but the clips <laughs> I see, I generally like. And I, and I really appreciated his stance on COVID policies over the past couple of years, for sure. Yeah, I get a lot of flack because, you know, my, my crowd, my people are very extreme and I, I'm pretty extreme on some things too, but I like to, uh, I like to give credit where it's due and that's, he's about, he's, and I, I still have hope of my, you know, my publicist sent one of my books to his uh, producer. So, you know, I'm still holding out hope. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, so where do you see at this point, um, do you think that the, the future of education in this country, especially considering 
the direction the country is going, we're kind of crumbling in every direction. At some point, I mean, the taxpayers never seem to tire of just throwing money down a black hole. I mean, how many billions are we giving to Ukraine? Uh, at what point are taxpayers finally going to say, you know, like they did in the 80s with the anti-IRS people and stuff, uh, what point are you going to say, you know, what? we not only disapprove of what, but th this is incredibly expensive. And as John on the screen says, who knows how many other teachers were, were paying $100,000 a year or two. And maybe his teacher was, if she, his wife was, he was there 35 years. She was probably there at least during some of the more sane times, I'm assuming. Maybe she was great. But uh, how many, do we want to pay for some of these TikTok teachers, you know, for that are uh, trying to transition students in 20 years from now? Do we want to pay them $100,000? At what point do you think you're going to find some real backlash outside of the libertarian world? I mean, again, I'm just hopeful. I just think there's so much momentum now, not only with education entrepreneurship and the, these micro schools and other kinds of um, innovative learning models, but also just school choice policies, just the, the huge win in Arizona this year. Thousands of parents have now signed up uh, for the education savings account program there to use that money to something other than an assigned district school. So there's clearly uh, parent demand. We saw the same thing, West Virginia just passing a nearly universal ESA program. Um, states are, are, are increasingly passing legislation to enable education funding to go back to families uh, instead of going to these bureaucratic institutions. And I think that's really what's going to lead to a lot of these changes. I think the real challenge now is to activate the supply of these education options, right? So we have thousands of families who wanna send their kid to some kind of private education option, whether it's a conventional private school or a micro school or a learning pod or some kind of homeschooling collaborative. And in many cases, there just isn't that supply yet, uh, right? So we need to make it easier for education entrepreneurs to start and scale their businesses. I have a new um, policy paper out at State Policy Network that talks about how we can kind of deregulate and loosen regulatory restrictions on education entrepreneurs uh, to make it easier for them to launch these innovative programs. And if you could, if you, I don't know if you can see John on the screen, he gave us, a, I mean, this is an amazing situation. He said she's, she, they're benefiting big time and she's a, still a Canadian citizen. I don't know. <laughs> just, that's just kind of baffling to me, but John, thanks for your honesty. I mean, you're, you're refreshing honesty because you are benefiting and, and more power to you, but man, I, who knows how many situations are like that. So we only have a couple of minutes left. So before you promote anything, uh, what what other points have I missed? Anything? What else did would you did you want to make sure that the audience hears that you want to talk about? Yeah, I mean, I guess I just reiterate what I was saying before. There's a lot to be upset about um, in terms of um, flailing test scores in the in the schools and uh, a youth mental health crisis that's been exacerbated over the past couple of years due to government policies related to COVID. Um, so there's a lot that we could dwell on, but I'm really optimistic at what I'm seeing, where I'm seeing the change makers. Um, and a lot of this kind of being driven bottom up from just everyday parents and teachers who are unhappy with what they're seeing and feel increasingly empowered to do something about it. And, uh, and I think what's really exciting now is that they're uh, increasingly able to connect with each other and kind of build this community of entrepreneurship to build the kind of education models and systems that we'd like for the future. So is this, is, is your, you know, because obviously this is your major, are, are you involved in any other issues as a libertarian or anything besides, or you're, you're, you're pretty much uh, concentrating on education? 
Yeah, I'm my my kind of uh, lane is education and education policy, but um, sort of the general principles of libertarianism of individual freedom, limited government, free markets, and peace. Uh, you know, I'm happy to shout that from the rooftops any day. Yeah, well, we're certainly. I mean, there's obviously a lot of uh, and you know, liber the Libertarian Party. You know, they interested me a lot in the past. I voted uh, for their candidate. I forget their candidates half the time. That's how memorable they were. But I forget what the last guy's name was. But uh, Ron Paul was their candidate, if you remember, at one time back in the day. And I certainly love Ron Paul. He wrote a forward to one of my books. So, uh, is anybody any high profile figures? Uh, supporting your work or joining? I mean, do you hear from anybody like maybe Ron Paul or uh, anybody? Uh, it's uh, I'm trying to think of other high profile libertarians. They really I can't think of any really at this moment. But uh, how do, do you get much support that way from from politicians or anybody? Yeah, I mean, I think you'll 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 definitely see politicians who are more libertarian leaning uh, gravitate to the content that we have at Fifi as a nonpartisan uh, think tank. We're not affiliated with the Libertarian Party in any way. We're sort of small L libertarians, but you will see people like Rand Paul and uh, Thomas Massey and Justin Amash, you know, um, retweet, uh, you know, fee content and um, oh, certainly be ambassadors yeah. for, for this message of, um, of libertarianism. Well, that's good to hear. And I, I think, you know, obviously the Republicans generally going to be more receptive. I didn't think, I wouldn't think you'd, uh, you'd probably hear from too many Democrats, but uh, they'll go ahead in, in the minute we have or so left, uh, promote whatever you want to promote, give out your links and everything. And I, I appreciate you joining us. Oh, thanks. Uh, so you can find me at the foundation for economic education at fee.org slash carry. Uh, you can also listen to my podcast, a weekly podcast, the liberated podcast, wherever you get your podcasts or on liberatedpodcast.com uh, and find me on Twitter at Kerry underscore edu. Well, it's, it's great. You've been a great guest. You're a, good, you're a great advocate for what you're doing. And obviously uh, you got a winning argument there. I mean, there's no, I don't think this, at this point, the education system is so broke that we have to seek out other alternatives. And it seems like uh, personally you found a better alternative and hopefully more people will be able to do that as well. So Carrie McDonald, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks again, Don. Take care. Goodbye. Okay, so we're, I'm looking at, um, we have the chat rooms clicking up a little bit. For some reason there weren't that many people in there earlier, I guess. Uh, so we got lots of people on Facebook though. Uh, Chris Buchan is there. Your crazy friend, John McAfee, was a big libertarian. Who's my crazy friend, John McAfee? Who? Oh, McAfee, you're saying. Okay, McAfee, John. Well, I don't know if he's my friend. I interviewed him a couple of times, and he did want to come back on my show. That was pretty cool. Or they killed him, or he faked his death, or whatever the hell happened. But definitely didn't commit suicide in prison. I can I can tell you that. Uh, he was a big libertarian. Right, I should have mentioned him. How did I? How can I think him? Veruca, uh, Veruca likes uh, Ron, Ron Paul. I wish Rand would be a little more like Ron because Ron, Ron Paul was great. Yeah, he may still be around his right. Uh, White Wolf says, uh, when I tutored people in, pupils in the 80s, I had college students who could not add fractions, let them in basic high school. Well, you know, I talk a lot about, uh, one day I'll write a book about sports and uh, it'll be the most controversial thing I've ever written. I don't know if I have, I don't know if I have the balls to do it, to be honest with you, because it's, you know, 
There's no way you can write an honest book about sports and not be called a racist. It's impossible. But um, if you're going to be honest again, and and uh, I, I don't know any other way. I can't I can't write, but you know, hold pulling punches. So uh, I remember Dexter Manley, who was a, a defensive lineman for the Washington Redskins, the team formerly known as the Redskins, now the Commies. And I don't call them the, the uh, commanders. I call them the Commies, the Washington Commies. And it's an appropriate name for them. Fresh off an unexciting win last night. But Dexter Manley, um, he made a big deal. Out of, I think went to Oklahoma State. And again, he was, he was, he was recruited by lots of top you know, institutions of higher learning, as they tell us. And after he had been out of the NFL a while, I don't know if it was a ploy for attention. He made lots of money. Uh, he testified for Congress tearfully and talked about how he was illiterate. He never learned to read. And people just kind of said, oh, you poor victim. And he is. He was. But nobody nobody said anything. Wait a minute. How did, how did, how did Dexter Manley or a, anybody else? And I think there are lots. He certainly wasn't the only one. He was more well-spoken than a lot of athletes that I've heard. But uh, – and how, how did they possibly pass a college entrance exam? You know, you go to a community college, uh, you know, like I said, the community college I dropped out of, you know, you have to, you have to pass an entrance exam to get in there. Uh, how do you, how did he go to Oklahoma State and not have to, because obviously whatever, you couldn't have filled out any forms if you're illiterate, but nobody asked that question and nobody asked that question ever. And, uh, you know, I think that, that that's, that's the kind of important things that, uh, that we need to ask white wolf calls and bread and circuits is that's absolutely what it is. But uh, let's see what we have over in the chat room uh, on Rockfin. I don't know any people here. Where are the people? There's Chris Graves. Ah, doggone it, Chris. I, I didn't see this till later. He said, I guess seeing those videos of kid here, kindergarten teachers are really traumatizing as very small children. Yeah. I thought about asking that. And before I read your question and uh, for those who don't know, boy, that's a, that's a, it's not, it's not a political thing either. That was just, uh, I just think again, just unbalanced preschool teachers that had one of them had a mask uh, from the movie, I guess the mask that kind of demonic, uh, was it to Hieronymus Bosch face that I love Hieronymus Bosch as a painter with a kind of the melting face and, um, just a very scary looking mass. And she's just running up and, and, you know, basically scaring all the preschoolers and they're screaming like crazy. They're clearly terrified. And she doesn't stop. She doesn't give it up. And uh, it's 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 very it's uncomfortable to watch. Let's say that. Um, uh, we have Stephanie Green here. Good to see you, Larry Light, Lori Light. Um, of course, Chris. Not, not as many people. Where is everybody today? I'm not seeing a lot of the people that are usually here. Chris Graves, Norm McDonald, RP. Absolutely, John one four nine. School was like jail. In second grade, I had. A nun that beat my ass with the yard said, yeah, well, yeah, if you, especially Catholic. So I've never met anybody that went to, and I didn't get the chance to go to catechism, but uh, CCD, but uh, my sisters uh, got to, to go. But I, usually you hear girls, they don't have, they didn't have the bad experience. I think they took it out on boys, especially the nuns. They seem to really love to like wrap boys knuckles like that, or in your case, your ass, but mostly, and I don't know, uh, I don't know why. That would be, uh, generally speaking, I think got a better education, but I know lots of people were traumatized by it. Not to mention like my friend, Bob Wilson, who was, uh, you know, the, the priest, the priests multiple uh, tried to sexually assault him. And luckily they didn't, but that has happened to way too many kids, obviously. Uh, okay, this, we only have a few people. There's Rhonda Tate. 
And she said, I can get a notification. All right. Yeah, I, I, I don't think, again, I, I, I would post more. I used to post about I protest on uh, Facebook and Twitter, but you know, with the shadow ban, it's just, it's pretty much pointless because only a couple people see it. And uh, I don't, you know, or somebody will see it five days later, you know, when it's irrelevant. So uh, maybe I should still do that. I don't know. Or post it days ahead of time, but um, I appreciate you being here, Rhonda, Stephanie, Laura, see if we see anybody else coming in here. Oh, now she saw it on Twitter feeds just now. Okay. Um, and I think Stephanie said she was in the band. That's all she liked uh, about school. I mean, I, I didn't, you know, I, I, there was nothing I liked about school. I didn't hate it, but I just didn't like it. Uh, Mark says, having returned to university as a mature student in the UK, I found it dismal. Since doing this, I've tried hard to direct my children towards a completely different path from formal education. Yeah, I think that, you know, and I've said this before, that the, the, the people in my life that I know that uh, have uh, been, uh, that I consider the most knowledgeable, and I, I'll be honest with you, the people that I, I still, the people that I enjoyed talking to the most were the, uh, that I, I had an affinity for, and maybe it's the populist in me, but uh, as a blue collar worker in my youth, I worked as a blue collar worker for like 15 years. I I kept in great shape because I pulled heavy carts around and I kept it real. And while I was trying to write on the side, I didn't know what the hell I wanted to do. I didn't have much direction in life. And uh, I enjoyed uh, the camaraderie. I enjoyed, you know, being against the man, even though I was getting nowhere. But, uh, you know, but but back then, you know, they, the pay was better and you had good benefits. And uh, it, uh, he said it kept you in shape. And I met a lot of friends, you know, a lot of people that way. But, uh, you know, it was, it was increasingly non-white. And but, you know, these people, none of the people were. I don't think there was a college. I don't think I ever worked with a college graduate. Any of those people or even going to college. Me going to community college was about the most you could have. And uh, but um, I found them really uh, much more awake and aware. We didn't call it awake back then than uh my friends that I didn't work with that were going to college and got degrees and, and especially the more education they got, if they got a master's, they were more asleep. I don't really know any PhDs, but I imagine they're sound asleep for the most part. So, and the better college you went to, although you listen to Karen McDonald, she, she went to Harvard. So uh, there are obviously some people that can overcome their education, say, but uh, I found that the more educated you are, tends to be the more brainwashed you are. So uh, give me the working class. I, I liked, uh, I enjoyed that. And uh, let me see if we have anything else here uh, on Facebook, I mean, on uh, YouTube. And I, I was just amazed by John's uh, point there that uh, I still can't get that, that it's his, his wife was making 140,000 a year and, and her retirement is 140,000. I mean, I mean, 100,000. And she's a Canadian citizen. That that's pretty amazing. Public schools are the jails, and I guess you could call them public. Yeah, and I we didn't. And of course, if you read my book, Bullyocracy, and you really should if you haven't. Uh, I wish more people would read it. Hasn't been hasn't been. It's probably my least selling book, but uh, very important book. But uh, it talks about how they've made schools into jails. Now, it, in uh, in in many cases, and they, uh, which makes again the prevalence of bullying in schools all the more inexcusable because all schools pretty much have police presence now. They have security cameras, uh, people signing in and out. That's why that Uvalde, Texas shooting, 
taking it on face value as a real shooting. Uh, no, you know, no drills, no, you know, no, no live shooter drill or whatever, like we suspect in a lot of these cases, then uh, no excuse because, I mean, they, they were checking everybody out. And I heard from uh, parents that contacted me after I wrote an article about it and said, hey, I've been teaching in that same school district. And, uh, you know, you would not believe what we have to go through to even get in one of these schools. So it did not add up at all. And then, of course, when you see the video of the cops drinking water and stuff, the I mean, just is that believable? I don't know. As much as I badmouth cops, I have a I, I just have a hard time believing that. With, with, there's a live shooter and they're shooting kids and they're acting like that. Um, Chris says I went through a similar work history as a younger guy. Now the insurance business has become woke. I have to find something else. I think maybe I'll do a podcast. <laughs> that may be the only thing left for people like us. But uh, I, I I don't know what I would do if I I mean I I've left the working world I mean I'm not gonna well I'm never gonna say never if if somebody offered me six figures to a job that uh, didn't um, didn't compromise my principles you know then uh sure so anybody out there listening uh you know sure I, 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 I I'm not for sale but I'll certainly uh, take a bigger income but I mean I'm doing what I love and. Uh, you know, this is, uh, it's just, it doesn't pay. It pays like a, you know, a minimum wage job for the most part. So I'm always begging for money. It seems like I don't mean to be, but that's why all of us are, because the, the, the world of uh, conspiracy type podcasting and writing books like that, uh, it doesn't pay well. And that's why all of us, you see, you know, somebody told me on Substack the other day, how come all you guys are always asked for money? Well, it's because of that, because this is what we, what we do. And uh, it's basically to finance like anything else, like you would have a, a school marching band come to your house and say, you know, can you, you know, can you give money to help? It's, it's you know, it's what you do. And um, let's see here. We have, uh, college standards are way down for Ruka. Yeah, I, I imagine they are. And um and Chris Buckin, Chris Buckin knows all my buddies. Okay, my buddy Grady Judd is big on all that. We need to keep you safe. And yeah, you know, and, and great. The only thing I say about Grady, and I guess you, you, maybe you have read Bullyocracy. I don't know how she'd know about the Grady but Judd. I don't know anything else about Grady Judd. I think you've mentioned it before. Maybe he's, you know, horrific like all the rest of them are. But in the one case of this bullying case of Rebecca Sedgwick, a little 12 year old girl who, uh, supposedly jumped or pushed off at 12 years old from a, a big water tower down in Florida. Uh, the, the evidence was voluminous that she had been bullied. She was bullied to death. It was bully side if she killed herself. And then one of the girls that uh, was torturing her uh, was caught on social media, basically saying, yeah, they think she jumped or something. He basically almost confessed. It was, it was a very strange post, but um I had one of these, and you know, you read about it in bullyocracy. I detail, I have it in detail, but one of these so-called anti, you know, bullying people, anti-suicide prevention experts. She sent me all the police reports, uh, had all the information that weren't public uh, from Grady Judds and, and the, the police investigation there, and uh, it just. I told her, I said, "Well, thanks, but this is, you know, because she was trying to say no, these it wasn't bullying." And I said, "What are you talking about? This is so documented; it's not even funny." But uh, and you know the, the the teachers wouldn't talk in the school. They would they they got attorneys before they'd talk. I mean, just really really crazy stuff. But uh, so you can read Billy Accuracy and find out all about that. 
Uh, Eric Hogan, nice to see you. Uh, I hate Kroger. It's a wake uh, corporation with lunatic control freaks who think there are many genders and force you to wear face divers by depriving you of critical oxygen. It's truly insane. Well, Kroger, we we had Kroger in uh, you know my Northern Virginia area a long, long time ago. We had some Krogers. I shop there. I guess they're still in other parts of the country. But uh, is there is there such a thing as a non woke corporation now? I don't really, really uh, know. I, I don't know because and that's I think that's the thing about so called conservatism is uh, Republicans and people on the right have a hard time arguing against the woke madness when they're still enamored. Uh, of the corporate world and the corporate world is just as woke as uh as the government is and i see tony sitting in tony what's how you doing we'll see what tony i always like to get tony's uh view of how uh how the show's going sounded good don always good well i appreciate that yeah carrie and i we've got uh I say, bro, I hope the Rockman chat heats up, and not as many people in there that I usually see. But it's always, and I guess we're not we're not going to be able to try the calls again at any point because it, it, it's yeah. yeah. We can try them. Just the, the we can put them on today if you'd like, Don. Just the issue is going to be people need to know ahead of time. Right. They're not going to. They need to like have a question or a comment for you, and then move on, and and you can answer it because they're not going to be able to hear you. They can hear me. Sure. Sure. Uh, what? It's a dis. Like I was able to do David Knight call ins, but. Um, and don't That's call if, if Don's on the line with somebody, don't call. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because well, that, yeah. Cause, cause, cause somebody mentioned to me, how come, how come you don't have Collins anymore? And, and it, uh, Tony has it on. And they, I said, I think that's cause he can figure out how to make it so they can hear him. It's just for whatever reason you, they can't make it so they can hear me. Right. It, yeah. It's the disadvantage. Like I can, I can do the, the call in right now for you. It's 888-770-1776. And I can put you on with Great. them, but they're not going to be able to hear you. They can hear me. Great. Okay. So any, the way the soundboard works until I can. So, so anybody wants to call in, we'd love to hear from you and you can talk to Tony and indirectly to me, <laughs> but I'll hear you. You just won't hear me until I, I'll have to give you your answer off the air. Um, there's lots of people in uh, YouTube making good comments. Parents should not allow their children on social media, Facebook and Twitter, psychological meat grinders. Well, that's true. But, you know, as a parent, Tony, I know that's for sure, too. It's you're up against a lot of pressure. You know, if you try to take something away from your kids that everybody else has, you know, because that's it's it's tough. Again, that number is 888-770-1776. I love those last four numbers. It's very cool. White Wolf says he buys all this food at the farmer's market. That's probably the wisest way to go. Yeah. <laughs> if you can do that. And uh, let's see what we have Always over here. Idea. Buy fresh, buy local. You know, look, right, we got some... on standby. Oh, cool. Great. All right, caller, you're on the air with Donald Jeffries. Go ahead. Hey, this is Tony. Hey, John. John 149 here. Hey, John. Tony, have you ever heard of dyslexia? Of course. Well, my teachers back, I was born in 64, never told me about this, and they wondered why Johnny couldn't read. Huh. You know, I just wonder, you know? Sure. Uh, well, that's a very fact. common learning disability. Uh, actually, I think it's the most common learning disability is dyslexia. I don't know why. My parents even paid like I 
I told Don before that the nun used to beat my ass with the stick. You know, sorry <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'll let you go. My, hey, I want to give a shout out to everybody on Rockman Chat, man. Appreciate you. Appreciate you, John. Appreciate you. Thank you, thank you, John one four nine. It's 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 great to hear the voice uh, associated with people. Yeah, and uh, yeah, d- uh, you know there there are people that believe that Lee Harvey Oswald had dyslexia. Just to let you know out there, that's that's one of the theories about him. I don't know. Some people think he had Aspergers. I don't know. Most of us believe he was just an undercover he agent for the government. Multiple multiple personality disorder that actually went out beyond his own personal <laughs> being as well. <laughs> he had multiple multiple Lee Harvey Oswalds. Multiple. Oh yeah, we know that. Uh, Eric Hogan. I, I, I Eric's good. To, I don't recognize your name, but it's good to see you here. Join the American States Assembly. Let's resurrect the original government of We the People. Instead of being controlled by the bankers, you know, my friend Vince Agnelli, uh, you know, the, the, who wrote the Public Wheel, he uh, he is one of those that's stressing that back to you know, back to the beginning. I mean, screw the Constitution, Articles of Confederation, baby, and uh, lots of people out there, and I, I run into it all the time that people say, "Yeah, you're talking about the Constitution and the Articles of Confederation were better." And certainly, all the people that I admired most in the Founders' generation, Patrick Henry, Thomas Jefferson, George Mason, they all preferred the Articles of Confederation. And right. George, George Mason ended up writing, uh, primarily writing the uh, Bill of Rights. But so I, but I, I, I just tend to think that the incorporation of the Bill of Rights into it makes it a, just a different document. And uh, I, think, I think it's, uh, I, and I think the power it grants to the government was offset by the checks and balances. And if, if we had just, but the problem is we've never, we've never done it. So uh, theoretically, I think it's the perfect form of government with James Madison's uh, three separate and equal branches of government. So no, there wouldn't be power concentrated too much any one place and the Bill of Rights there to protect God-given rights. But how do you, as I said, how do, how do you uh, how do you sell uh, God-given rights now, Tony, when, I don't know, maybe half the country doesn't believe in God. I don't know what the deal is, but because they, they're, they're not going to understand. What do you mean God-given rights? You know, what, what does that mean? No, it's a philosophical issue. Well, I think that'll come back. Uh, you know, you look at something like Will Durant, the historian who wrote the story of civilization. He had a an interesting quote. He said, "You know, wherever there's poverty, there will be gods." And I think, <laughs> yeah. I think that when we go into this great reset and the austerity and the coming financial um, turmoil, I think there'll be a lot more people going back to roots and basics. I mean, just right now, we're just again. Uh, I think we have a false construct that we're operating over. We got a call, Don. Let me see if I can get it live here. Okay, gotcha. All right, caller, you're you're on the air with Donald Jeffries. Go ahead. Oh, hi, Tony. I'm sorry, I didn't have my my uh, sound turned down. This is Stephanie Green. How are you guys doing today? <laughs> great, great. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Go ahead. Oh, hi. It's Stephanie Green. Yes. Nice to I hope you're doing well today. Yeah, thank you. Um, I just had a question. You're, you're quite welcome. I just had a quick question. Uh, since we were talking about um, homeschooling, well, we weren't. You guys were. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have two friends. We just live on a little tiny dead-end road here, and I have two friends. Um, one has, uh, like, elementary kids, and the others are teenagers. And I would really love uh, to homeschool these kids because they just like know nothing. They don't even know how to read a regular clock. Um, <laughs> but they just really don't have a clue what's going on in the world. And I was just wondering if either one of you could just quickly address 
um, a way that maybe I could approach them, um, especially in the winter time, because it, I don't have a, a great deal to do. And it's just something I think I'll get a lot of satisfaction out of. And I, but I just really don't. I've tried to bring it up, and I don't get anywhere. So that's all I wanted to say. Enjoying the show and looking forward to maybe some advice. Thank uh, you. Well, how old were they? How old are the kids? Um, the, the the one girl, their their kids are elementary age, and the others are, I guess, middle school. They're uh, 14, 15, 16. So mm. I guess that would be middle. I'm, I'm not sure how this. That's yeah, we had tougher, tougher high, for right? the older kids. But yeah, you might yeah. want to. There's a series of children's book called The Tuttle Twins, and it's by a liber, uh -huh. libertarian young lady, and she wrote children's books, and it teaches about the creature from Jekyll Island, and you know, it does it like in a uh, in a way that it's illustrated, and uh, they have uh, things on like foreign policy and the Constitution and other things. You know, just things that we care about. You know, the roots of American liberty and Free markets. Uh, I pencil is one that they have in there where they talk about, you know, the uh, the intricacies of how stuff stuff gets to market, you know, instead of central planning. So, you you know, you could look at the, mm -hmm. the Tuttle twins. That's something I would, you know, if you had I, definitely if if I had my choice and I had my son, you know, it, it start over again, um, it, it would be homeschool all the way. I mean, I would there's so many great programs out there for kids. I mean, there's no reason to send them to school. Well, like yeah. I said, my, my biggest problem is trying, I, I was more interested in the, the teenagers, um, but trying to talk, uh, it's actually their grandmother that has custody. I like, if she just doesn't get it or why I want them, you know, out of a regular school and, um, yeah, cause I, I mean, we all had to completely reeducate ourselves and, um, but I don't know how to get through to her, but you think just maybe trying when the kids are down here visiting, Sure. To, you know, it's, it's a, it's so hard to get their faces out of TikTok videos. That's the way those things are designed. You know, it's just designed to keep them distracted and dumbed down. And, and you know, it's absolutely, it's I know, preying upon that. Yeah. It's unfortunate. Okay. That was Tuttle with a T, Tony. Tuttle with a T. Tuttle twins. Okay. I will. Thank you so much, guys. And um, join the show. I'm going to let you go now. So you need to take another call. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you, Stephanie. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know, I would lo I loved hearing her voice. Stephanie has been so kind and uh, she's, we have dog biscuits. I understand on the way pretty soon, Tony uh, beans, uh, beans is going to be enjoying them. And uh, my golden retriever diva Riley. And uh, I think Billy Ray's dog was out on his name as well. Apollo. So uh, yeah, Billy's but, yeah. Dog name is Apollo. Apollo. Oh, there you go. So <laughs> you got to respect that name and uh, their homemade biscuits. So thanks for everything you do, Stephanie. It's wonderful to hear your voice. You have a lovely voice. Thanks, Mark, in the uh, Rockfin chat room that uh, uh, tipped us. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. And I'm seeing what else we have. It looks like people that's lighting up. I guess people are coming in halfway through the show. It must be Tony. It's attracting it. You know, I mean, Tony's here and, uh, <laughs> I don't think it's me, Don, but uh, that's great. <laughs> yeah, uh, let's see. We have, uh, yeah, it's Jason Barker yelled, Tony, when he came here. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's it's so, I mean, we'll talk about some of this tomorrow, I'm sure. But, uh, and, and Eric Hogan says he has Asperger's and he's deaf. Well, bless you, man. You, you know, Like somebody said on here, you type better than the rest of us. So you're certainly not affecting your typing. And uh, your taste in podcasts is great. I'll give you that. <laughs> but uh, there's... There's so many, I mean, I, you know, 
I think half of the millennials have Asperger's or more. I mean, I don't even know what it is, but you know, they have all Aspie groups and everything. I, and it's all part of the Asper, uh, the uh, autism spectrum thing. And obviously it needs to be checked out, but there's no question that it's related in some way to the vaccines. I don't think, but uh, we were, you know, we, we had this, um, uh, so much craziness going. We were obviously on the verge of World War III again. And what we're hearing now that uh, Nancy Pelosi, I guess, has been watching um, too many movies and television shows because she apparently thinks at 81 years old she's some kind of a prize fighter. You say she wants to to punch Donald Trump out. I mean, what is what, <laughs> is that a isn't that a threat? She, I mean, <laughs> I, think, I think she uh, is confusing the term punch drunk with something totally different. <laughs> we've, got a, we've got a call, Don. Uh, welcome. You're on the, okay. the line with Don Jeffries. Go ahead. Hello, Mr. Jeffries. Uh, I was just wondering what your thoughts were on the school of hard knocks. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's that's what the oldsters generally do, right? I, I, I don't ever want to be that kind of guy where I say, yeah, I went to the school of hard knocks. And I, I don't know how many Facebook profiles you say, school of hard knocks, you know? So I don't know. I haven't known too many people in my life that actually went to a school of hard knocks. I guess maybe back then is popular, you know, like my, my father had to quit school at 14, you know, and to, to help his family out. So you know, he didn't go beyond that. So that's hard knocks, I guess, if you start working at that age. And a lot of people did back then. But uh, people of my generation, I I don't know too many of them that, that went to the school of hard knocks. They may have had a hard knocks life later, uh, especially if they got into substance abuse or something. But, uh, yeah, that's kind of a – it's only a couple steps removed from the – you know. when I was young, we used to walk 15 miles to school every day. We didn't have real shoes, you know. We, could, we couldn't get tread on them every winter, every other winter. You know, and uh, like a Grandpa Simpson or something, but sure. uh, people tend to exaggerate. So hopefully, people don't think I'm doing that when I'm talking about how different America used to be. But it wasn't, it wasn't a utopia at all. And I was co complaining about it constantly back then. It's just, uh, <laughs> it's just, it wasn't. If you, I and I uh, tomorrow, I hope people listen. I'm, I'm going to give Twitter Spaces a chance again. It looks like enough notification got through. Maybe we'll have a crowd again. I don't know. Because they let their guard down. Facebook does once in a while. Once in a while, I can get something through. But most of the time, the shadow band's up there. But uh, so you have to kind of try to give them a head fake or something. But um, I'm titling it The Trifecta of Tyranny. And I think that's what we're living under now. I, I, I People have probably heard me say this. But I think we're dealing with three separate things, thus the trifecta. We're not, and, and back in the old days, again, when I was complaining as a youngster and you know upset at the way things were then, was only one of these trifectas that existed, and that was the corruption. The corruption was there. The, you know, the hypocrisy, it's always been there. But, oh, well, no, I'm sorry. The corruption and, yeah, no, corruption and incompetence, both were there. Okay. But the other two things we're dealing with now that obviously weren't there then, one is the uh, this overwhelming tyranny, this Orwellian tyranny, and that's what we're seeing with the January 6th stuff and uh, political prisoners being held without all, due, you know, denied all due process for almost two years. And uh, that kind of stuff where people are there and you saw what happened to Alex Jones. I mean, this kind of stuff where they're opening the door to suing people. And I don't know if you saw that, Tony, or not that, you know, this is, and I think they're using Alex Jones just like they use Trump because they know his personality is divisive enough that so many people are not going to care what they do to him. And, uh, 
this uh, he supposedly the attorney general, I think it is, of Texas is Republican, is saying he's going to sue Alex Jones over claiming there was vote fraud. What? You know, it's like so. So now are they going to be suing people that so are do you and I have anything to worry about? I mean, I they're going to they're, they could be taking people to court over their opinions. And that's why every, everybody that's celebrating what happened to Alex Jones and yes, He's probably a part of it, the way he's acted. He's probably, you know, <laughs> is an actor in it. But just symbolically what it represents, it's it's a crushing dissent of, of free speech. And, uh, you know, I, I saw Yahoo or one of them making fun of Marjorie Taylor Greene, who tried to give a typical Marjorie Taylor Greene defense of somebody where it didn't come out very well. And it's like, you know, all he did was talk and then he apologized. <laughs> Instead of just saying, look, this is free speech, you know, you have a right to uh, – you have a right to speculate. Alex Jones is is a, a kind of an entertainer. That'd be like you know suing one of the idiot late nights comedians, and I'd be you know for that too. As much as I can't stand a, a Colbert, who's basically become a court jester for the state, this guy's completely deluded. He was once pretty good back on the Daily Show. So, you know, I don't know what the hell happened to him, but he's been completely co opted, and he really looks deranged most of the time now. But I, I would be just as upset if, let's say, I don't know, the Republicans got in power and they tried to sue. Colbert for making fun of Donald Trump or something. You can't do that. You know, you can't, you, you just can't do that. And this, you, you, you have a right to speculate. You have a right in something like that. There are lots of people speculating about it. So I, I'm very concerned about the, the future and where this is headed. If there'll be other people, and you already have Jim Fetzer, who's another guy that's, you know, really, and you know, he's kind of my friend. I used to defend him all the time, the JFK forums. I haven't talked to him for years, but he's in danger. He's already been sued. Uh, Wolfgang Halbeck, who I feel really bad for, who Alex threw under the bus, I think he might be in danger of being sued again. I don't know. It's, there's something wrong with this because it, it opens the door too. Like we, a lot of us mentioned, why is it just Sandy Hook? Why, for instance, uh, there's a lot more 9/11 so-called truthers. What about those families? What if they decide, decide to start, uh, you know, suing my friend Richard Gage and people like that? I mean, is that what we want? Because we're we're opening up wounds by questioning the official story. And some of the people in 9-11, some of them question that anybody died. There's lots of people out there who say there were hollow, empty buildings and nobody really died and all that stuff. And the people on the planes weren't there. There, there are people in the 9-11 community because you're going to speculate when something's not investigated. Do, do we think the parents... Like why you can say whatever you want. You can believe... Right. What about the religion that believes that uh, in the giant spaghetti monster? There's a yeah. religion, an official religion that believes yeah. that... The giant spaghetti monster lives in the sky. They call yeah. themselves Pastafarians. I mean, this is, I mean, they made it up. Is that wrong? You have, I mean, this is an entire farce. I can't believe that uh, for whatever reason, Jones didn't mount a defense. Yeah. Yeah. And didn't have like uh, real lawyers. Yes. Yeah. Like, yeah. like <laughs> And I know a lot of people don't realize is that lawyers, a lot of times, even when you're in the right and you have money, won't take your case. Yeah. Because their firm doesn't want to touch you. So there is a case to, there is uh, probably some logic in the fact that even if you're right and you have funds and you're, re you're ready to go, there's no one that'll help you. Right. So right. that is, that's, but I don't mean they didn't make any case for free spin. Those judges just, I mean, they're just, they're ready to burn the Constitution to the ground. Yeah. Get, that's what I said. You know, those people that, uh, those judges, and again, you're right. I didn't understand what Alex Jones' strategy was, the lawyers you hired, but 
he had no chance. And and though I never saw, I have not seen Amy Berman Jackson in in action, who was uh, Roger Stone's uh, judge and could be the judge for anybody else you know that tried in D.C. But I'm sure it was very similar. These are political activists. The first judge Jones had, uh, you looked at her social media page and she's got all the OBGT flags and stand with Ukraine and all that stuff. So you tell me what the difference is if a liberal or somebody radical walks into uh, a woke person on the odd chance they would ever be charged with anything. But uh, and they walk into a courtroom and the judge in that case is all over social media with uh Swastikas. Well, they, first of all, they wouldn't allow that, but let's say they somehow allowed it. So they have swastikas and, you know, Hitler was great or something, you know, white power or something like that. Uh, does does somebody like a Black Lives Matter uh, activist or Antifa activist, if they go into a courtroom like that, do they want that judge? And would be, people be okay with that? Of course not. I mean, first of all, that, that person would never be a judge you know, in, in, in a million years. Or right. if they were, they wouldn't be able to advertise those kinds of things on their social media. But I mean, well, let's let's then go that far. Let's say a judge that just said all lives matters or, you know, white lives matter to, re- to really push it. That would be enough to say probably to, to, to have them withdrawn from the bench. But certainly for that. But that's and that's the, the thing that scares me with the January 6th defendants or anybody else. If they decide to round up all the dissidents, those are the kind of judges we're going to be getting. Oh yeah, they're they're straight to the <laughs> straight to the death camp kind. If they had the ability, they yeah. just send it to death. I'm pretty sure. Yes, they would. Right? And I, I asked that question years ago. What if a judge, which I found many judges in the in the Southwest and in Texas, are part of La Raza, which means the race, which means they support mm-hmm. racial supremacy. That's what that yeah. is. I mean, yeah. that's the and they changed their name recently. I forget what it was it was like la raza to something really milk toast and non-threatening but they believe in the, the the concept of what's called la reconquista you know this stuff don but it's like we yeah, want to yeah. take back you know the south the southwest and repopulate i mean it's like total racial like supremacy stuff yes. right out of the aryan it's like it's just aryan but a different name you know like different and they have people that are just that's just fine you can be the race you know, and you can be, believe in racial supremacy. So they I mean that that would disqualify you. Like if if I knew a judge was a Nazi or uh, some kind of, because I mean, uh, are there any Nazis left besides the ones that are already dead? I, I don't really know. For no. sure, but it's like as far, you know. But I'm just saying, if there was, if somebody said, uh, you know, there were, uh, you know, a complete advocate of white supremacy or something like that, that person should be dis- disqualified from ruling over things because you'd have to, you can't be objective and so right um, but you can but you but you can say you can make anti-white comments and that's why i keep trying to stress this with people was you know i'm not trying to be a white nationalist but it's it's wrong and it's like you know we all recognize we look at the history books now and and you know knowing how they lie about everything else maybe they exaggerated that but taking it at face value that huh okay yeah taking it at face value that um you know, back in the, let's say the 1930s in the deep South in Mississippi or Alabama or something, you're a white, you're a black defendant and you're accused of looking at a white woman the wrong way or something, let alone rape, just, just looking at the wrong way, which they, they were tried for those things like that. If you go into that courtroom and you see the all white jury, uh, maybe all of them are KKK members. The KKK was very popular back then. Unlike now where <laughs> really, I don't think anybody belongs to the KKK now, but, uh what chance for justice did you have? When we all recognize that, that no, of course, 
that was wrong. We had no chance for it. Well, what chance does, uh, you know, what chance did Roger Stone have? And again, regardless of Roger Stone's personality, I've heard the recent uh, recording of him coming, uh, calling uh, uh, Ivanka Trump's abortion bitch daughter or something, something like that. But uh, so clearly, you know, Roger behind the scenes is, I guess, really outspoken. Maybe he, you know, goes with his true feelings. But yeah, again, he committed no crime at all. Again, they're taking people that maybe they have personalities that uh, are divisive and offend people. You can't put people on trial for being uh, obnoxious or being objectionable. You just can't do it. That's the identity. Of, uh, that's identity politics, and that's uh, you know that's the thing. And and the White Wolf makes a good point. Or the Germany run by Hitler, portrayed by Hollywood's myth. And, and I I bring that up all the time. That's I'm not going to be like some people on the side and say Hitler was a great or hero. You know, I, I don't think we know anything about Hitler other than, you know, I think Professor Anthony Sutton wrote a great book on him called Wall Street and the Rise of Hitler. He said he was a, you know, he's a product of the same forces that created everybody else. Wall Street and the Brunswick Revolution, another great book he wrote, Wall Street and FDR. But um, certainly the Hitler promoted by, why do we, why do we believe the myths about Hitler? And yet we recognize, okay, the myths about Osama bin Laden and and uh, Noriega and uh, you know uh, Saddam Hussein, all these people, these modern uh, boogeymen. We recognize, of course, they're ridiculous. This is just wartime propaganda, uh, and that's exactly right. Chris Buckins said JFK said Hitler was a genius and legendary. Yeah, and JFK JFK said a lot of stuff, you know, that he'd be remembered and everything. But again, that was because. It's not that JFK was that exceptional at that time. That was the conventional view at that point. That was what lots of people believed. And uh, again, you don't have to admire him, but uh, it's it's you know very. Um, I see Tony's back. Is um, we're just talking about uh, people keep coming in a Hitler. <laughs> Hitler Hitler is so popular, man. I he so really he, he really he's just. It, I mean. <laughs> He's, he's definitely the favorite dictator of choice, I think, today still, because he's the – and both sides use him. That's what's hilarious is that everybody basically calls in on – because the, the left and right both now call people Nazis they don't agree with. You know, you're a Nazi. He's like, you know, again, the Nazi, the Nazi party hasn't existed real, the National Socialist Party, whatever it was, the National Socialist uh, since, what, 1945, right? You know, right. World War II. So. So, you know, uh, it's been a long time. I don't, you know, we you had the the brown shirts here, you know, that were not far from me in Arlington, Virginia. I, I had no association with them. Yeah. Their corporation were... continued through Mar what Martin Borman set up into the Fourth Reich, but uh, that's a whole other show. Hey, with Don, we got a call. Cool. Uh, welcome to the I Protest with Donald Jeffries. It's not the Donald Jeffries show. That's for another time. <laughs> Go ahead, call it. Hey, this is Jason Barker. You know who I am. I know. Uh, how you ah. doing? Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm doing great, man. Uh, so I had a question reaching back to the Alex Jones thing, right? So uh, when I seen this whole trial thing work out, and obviously had a what appeared to be an incompetent lawyer, and you can't uh, raise a defense. Do you think that whole thing was staged to gain sympathy uh, with his audience so that he can grift for more money? And that's my question. But you take that one first, Don. Well, you know, I don't. Uh, I doubt that Alex Jones was uh, the orchestrator here. I don't think he he orchestrated hey, his. Someone let's go, man, so I can uh, hear okay. it on the. Thanks, I Jason. Turn my speaker yeah. off. Appreciate so, you, brother. All right, brother. 
Nice to hear your voice, Jason. I, I certainly appreciate all your uh, contributions and tips and everything. It's great to have you in the in the uh, in the chat room. I, I don't think Alex Jones was the orchestrator of this. Uh, I think he may very well be a willing participant. He may be part of the show and uh, playing the villain, if you will, the WWE bad guy. But uh, however you look, and he's certainly he's going to be able to grift because now he has a real excuse. I mean, you know, they're trying to bankrupt him. So what else can what else can you do to support him but buy more of his products? So uh, I just look at it, you know, I take it on face value that this guy is being, whether he's in on it or not, symbolically, you are persecuting and prosecuting somebody for speech. And yes, he, you know, to be more legitimate, that should have been his entire defense the entire time from the very beginning. And they should have, uh, it would have been great if they had prevented, presented a real defense, because I'm telling you, if if I had been his attorney, you know, we could have come up with lots of videos that the great Chris Gray's people like that can still find out there, you know, and, uh, you know, in archived form place, they've scrubbed a lot of them, but they're still there. And uh, they're, they're, they really are a damning indictment of the so-called official story. So if you just present the evidence and say, you know, you're not saying anything about the parents or anything, you just present the evidence and you put that up and say, look, Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, this is why my client doubts this. Observe the helicopter footage from that day from local news, not a conspiracy theorist. This, uh, you can see that, that that's Sandy Hook Elementary School. What do you see going on there? This is in the immediate aftermath of a mass shooting. What do you see? And if you've seen that helicopter footage, that's the first thing that really struck me. You don't see much of anything. It certainly doesn't look like any kind of you know, mass shooting has happened. So, again, I'm not saying it didn't. I'm just saying explain what we're seeing there. Explain that. Explain the porta potties that were set out like Wolfgang Halbeck talked about. Explain the food that was delivered to the firehouse. Explain the sign that says, uh, that says sign in here. That apparently that uh, I, I interviewed Wolfgang Halbeck, a lawyer uh, on uh, I protest or yeah, it was I protest. And, uh, she admitted that one of the things they were able to find out when they went, when Wolfgang was battling them up there in uh, Connecticut and getting stonewalled at every turn, they were able to admit that Homeland Security did put that sign in, sign in here. Now, what is Homeland Security going to a fire station in Connecticut for? So there are lots of questions there. The things I've tried to find out, I haven't been able to. I can't find, you know, a, a credible enough source, but there are lots of people that say, a lot of the people involved, uh, the parents and people like Gene Rosen, uh, you know, witness that uh, they were uh, granted their properties on Christmas Day for free on Christmas Day, too. Of all they, I don't know what that means, but it isn't uh, normal business procedure. It's got to mean something. So those are the questions I would have raised. And I wouldn't make any accusations. I'm not going to be about like Jim Fetcher and, and have that ridiculous provocative title that I'm even scared to say on air for his book, because um, you're asking them to be censored, because we don't know. We don't know what happened, but the, the idea that people can sit there, regardless of what time of show it is, I mean, they ended up awarding almost a billion dollars to the end. And why just eight, I think it was eight families. Why just eight parents? Weren't there 26 families or whatever? Why, 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 why only eight? And how, at what point, I mean, I would, you know, I would feel guilty. I think Robbie Parker got like 150 million. That's insanity. And, and I point out, contrast that to Johnson and Johnson. 
that paid out $100 million total for their talcum powder that killed so many people. I mean, are, are we saying that that what Alex Jones said was so uh, so was worse than killing people with talcum powder? What he said that, that he shook, so we had to pay. I mean, that's it's insane. And uh, again, regardless of his role, regardless of what you think of him, we have to fight against this because we can't have it because all of us are in danger of have of of having our beliefs put on trial. Don, are you aware of anyone that was ever sued or even? any kind of backlash for some, for, for researchers who talked about the Boston bombing being a complete false flag and no one no. was like, like Charlie Robinson in the book, uh, the octopus of global control. He did a great job of breaking down the Boston bombing and man, it is bizarre. And I oh, can't, yes. Yes. and the thing is no one pushes back again. Like there's nobody no. out front pushing back against conspiracy people on the Boston bombing. None. And it's just it, it, it did a bad job. I mean, I mean it yeah. did a bad job. It's and it's yeah. like, you know, it's funny because you read read what Charlie Robinson wrote and uh, what he researched on it. I mean, we would, I should have him on the show sometime just to talk about the Boston bombing. Well, I, well, it's the people. That, I I think that uh, Dave McGowan, the late great Dave McGowan, uh, one of uh, you know, I guy I was just starting to reach out to when he he got uh, one of the fastest developing uh, Jack Ruby style galloping cancer, as I call it. Uh, and then he dies on November 22nd of all days. I mean, it's like a cosmic coincidence thing. But Dave did great work on the Boston bombing. And uh, he, his last interview he gave is is haunting to watch. You might still be able to watch the archives. And it was on John B. Wells' Caravan to Midnight. I've been on there a few times. And uh, it's because, you know, Dave, he's kind of coughing. He might have already been getting sick and he's smoking constantly. But uh, it's a lot of people think that's what, you know, that's what got him. That it was just, it was so convincing because they kept showing the video footage and the pictures and how David analyzed it for the Boston bombing and how ridiculous it was. But you're right. Why Why didn't, uh, why are they using Sandy Hook? I don't know. They've chosen to do that. Like I said, they could do it for 9-11. I used to argue with the JFK assassination research community, <laughs> such, such as it exists, um, that I say, you know, look, you're supporting this. What, you know, what, what is it? It's really the, almost the same thing. What, what if, the, what if the, what if Caroline Kennedy, who I know probably would do it if she could, because she's no John John, let's put it that way. She, uh, you know, what does she decide? You know what you, you guys have been, you know, hurting me for decades. You, you, you hurt my family. Lots of them died of broken hearts because all this speculation, this reckless speculation, this misinformation about my dad's death. What, what's the difference? I said, you know, what, aren't, aren't you, couldn't she claim that we're harassing her or harassing her as much as uh, Alex Jones harassed anybody? As he pointed out, he never mentioned any of those parents by name. So what, I mean, this is this, and the idea, but when you have a judge like that and you have a brain dead jury and I, you know, I with all due respect to Lisa Belanger, our friend, uh, she had told me once, now you want a jury trial instead of a judge. Well, yeah, maybe still, but they do. I keep track of some of these jury decisions. I watch these investigation discovery shows for maybe a book about uh, the injustice system at some point. It's it's amazing how many people they send up the river on you know some you know crack addicts testimony that they recant, and that's that's it. It's the only testimony against them. Life sentence. I mean, reasonable doubt, innocent until proven guilty. So you get in a situation like that. Most people these these jurors are going to be just like the general public at large. They're gonna they're gonna have a, a oh my god oh that objectionable this is a chance to suck it to him, 
this terrible loudmouth blowhard conspiracy theorist is reckless guy and he's waving his arms around he's half crazy and and he and these poor parents over there think of what they've been through we have to give them 150 million i mean that seems to be the attitude and it's uh i, I don't know I, I don't know how anybody can defend it but uh it is what it is and, and cyber camp says check the real estate and say hey cyber camp if you can man um Email me, authorjeffries at, at, at gmail.com. Uh, I, I would look, because I want that, because that, that's that's bombshell evidence if you find it. But I, I don't know how you check the real estate. Where, where are the sources for that? I'd love to see that. Okay, let's see. We had lots of people in them. Doug Waters said, I think they're doing the Sandy Hook because it was one of the big ideas set forward by research and lack of lawsuits by the parents. Yeah, and that's true. That's true, Tony. That's I, When I used to read the forums about Sandy Hook, that was one of the things that they used to talk about all the time. Why have none of the parents sued? And, and that's true. But it's just nobody thought they would sue Alex Jones. What is he? Now, they did sue Remington which is amazing. And I, I'll, uh, I'll have some of that in Hidden History 4 at some point because I'm going to discuss all this. But uh, another horrible precedent. I mean, it would, that, that would be like if you got in an accident, unless you could prove that the, there was some you know, faulty thing that, uh, that uh, they, had, they needed to have a recall about, a, I don't know, an engine blowing up or something. Uh, you, you can't sue an auto manufacturer because you got in an accident, can you? I mean, you can't sue... Um, I don't know. You, can you sue McDonald's because you got obese? And, and I mean, why should you be able to sue the manufacturer of the shotgun? I mean, I, I, as a gun guy, Tony, I'm sure that really bothered you. That was just ridiculous. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, the the the, the tool itself. I mean, if I go and if you somebody goes and takes a hammer and kills somebody with it, they they sue the tool the tool man. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. uh, that's just uh, that's just a way. All of this is a triangulation to disarm you, to take yeah. away your right to protect yourself. And this is a slow burn. They got to work work their way because we're so ingrained in this country, or at least we used to be, with the right to keep and bear arms. And I think that's more popular probably than it's ever been. I mean, in the mo in, in the mainstream of just regular people, like yeah, I'm going to protect even people like Bill Maher is like, well, I have a gun because I have to protect myself, and he he supports gun control, which is you know again just that that kind of logic even from people on the left. So, and they love their bodyguards, and they love all. I mean, they the left loves guns, just not in your hands, right? Not and they yes. they love guns in the hands of criminals and, and you know and drug lords and and things like that, but not in your hands. So. It's it's just it's war. It's a war on your on your rights, and this has been going on. It you, you the price of liberty, Don, is eternal vigilance. We this is we're yeah. never going to stop these fights. It's all the time. And pra Prairie Fire points out that's true. It, it, Remington never even put up a fight. That's it's, that's what that's what's amazing is that Alex Jones, Remington, are they all part of it? Why wouldn't you? How would you? Uh, to me, to me, you could build a pretty good defense. On wait a minute, you know we've had in the history of of of, of firearms. How many murders have happened? And has any manufacturer of a weapon ever, I mean, did, I mean unless, unless they can prove Remington put out a, a manual along with it about how to go shoot up a school, this is the best way to do it or something? I mean, this is ridiculous. I'm guessing that they just couldn't get anybody to take the case, even if they have the money. I've seen that before. I've literally seen it in my own life. You have the, you're, you have the right. You have, you're in the right. You got the cash. But because you're who you're, you're up against, no one will take it. I'm actually, I've had law firms refund me because we, my family had to sue our own lawyer once and they, and no other, because they took all of our records. Yeah. <laughs> we, we couldn't get, we couldn't get anybody to help. 
I mean, it's yeah, like they, they stole yeah. it, stole stuff. And they said, well, it's a lawyer. And I mean, we could, we, and then you could say, oh, I'll give you a $20,000 retainer. Won't take it. Well, that, and that's why, cause you don't have attorneys like Mark Lane, you know, my uh, hero and mentor. Cause you know, back then this guy was a uh, far left-wing Jew, uh, civil libertarian. Again, my, my political mentor, I tried to, you know, copy his libertarian style. I mean, I saw the civil libertarian style. But he ended up uh, uh, near his last years. He he famously defended the spotlight in Liberty Lobby, who was a far right wing, or you know they're populist. But uh, yeah. Fletcher Prowse also that. But he uh, you know they published a lot of uh, Holocaust denial, and and Mark. But Mark Lane, he uh, as a civil libertarian, he recognized they were being wronged in these lawsuits, and so he represented him. And uh, that's that's what you don't get anymore. You don't get it. There are no Mark Lane. So Mark Lane's that you would have been able to get an attorney like that. And uh, Alex Jones would have been able to get an attorney like that. And if he wanted it and uh, Remington, people like that, you would have people that recognize. But apparently there are no attorneys like that. Now, I, I don't I'm amazed when I, I always used to think is someone who dreamed of being an attorney kind of. But I just never had the discipline to, you know, to, to try to pursue the education. Uh, people, many people have told me I should be a mouthpiece, but uh, I never. uh I just always thought, you know, I watched too many Perry Mason episodes, I guess, but I, I, I just thought they were more impressive than they are. But when you see them on in court, on televised proceedings, like, wow, they're, they're just not impressive at all. I like to think, you know, that I, I, and I understand why some of these killers defend themselves. And to be honest with you, yes. they do like, like, a, a, what was the guy's Ted name? Bundy. And of course, yeah. Te, yeah. Temple. Well, the, the guy and, he now, of course, he was a horrible person. He he unquestionably shot up the subway. Was it Colin Ferguson? I think his name was. I think so. A black guy, but uh, he was a hell of an impressive he, a lawyer. Hey, I mean, he sounded way more brilliant and astute than the other lawyer. I mean, of course, he was he was nuts, and he clearly was guilty. But he, I, I remember watching. I, I was like mesmerized. Like wow, and, and I think Manson probably would have been that. Manson was incredibly mesmerizing. You know, he he could. I think he could make fools of a lot of these people. So uh, it's uh, clearly they can do better in the legal profession. But I guess it just attracts people because it's there's uh, so much corruption there. And again, to mention Lisa Belanger, she's fighting her own battles out there, and she's seen it firsthand. And uh, the J six people we've talked to, people like Victoria White, uh, them trying to find a, a, an honest attorney or somebody that really helped. It's it's very and that's that's the problem there. That where are the where are the civil libertarians here? Again, Mark Lane would have been standing outside that prison and his stand. He would have, he would have been representing those people and he would have done a really good job, but uh, we don't have that now, Tony. And that's, that's the thing. And see if we got anything else over in the Rockfin chat, the YouTube chat has been very active. Uh, let's see here. What did I miss anything? Um, a lot of Sandy hook stuff here. Uh, Chris Gray's Gene Rosen changed his story meant four times. Yes, he did. The Gene Rosen, and I don't know if you remember back in back when you, um, when uh, YouTube was at its peak, you know, and, and, and some of the Sandy Hook videos were great. I don't know if you guys remember Team Wake 'Em Up, Red Silver Jay. Still want to get that guy. Oh, just <laughs> impressive. He had a great videos, but um, they they were writing songs about Gene Rosen. <laughs> I can't remember it now, but I remember you said, great song about him. And they just like juxtaposed this conflicting testimony and stuff like that. And, uh, but it never occurred to me back then that Gene Rosen, and maybe he will, maybe he'll sue too. Maybe people like that will sue. But again, this is speculation and it's based on 
you know, I think it's based on logical inference the same way with it with Alex Jones. And that's what gets me at Alex Jones. And he, I wish he hadn't apologized because there was no reason to apologize. And because uh, again, I never apologized for free speech. And uh, he, but he never made that point. He would say like, I used to think nobody died. Now I think they did. It's like, yeah, why are you saying this? Say, look, there are a lot of questions around this thing. Speculation was everywhere. And uh, that was the, that was the, you know, lots of people were saying that. And uh, <coughs> I gave him a forum and, uh, you know, their evidence they presented was interesting. That's a huge take from there. I don't see and he, but he never did. And again, he, and that's why people think, was he part of it? I don't know. I don't know. Now David's on vacation. I don't know. I'd be interested to see what David, I don't know what David thinks of this. Uh, yeah. I had, he texted me the other day. I, I just can't read that on the air. I let him, I want him to, I didn't know if he wanted me to talk about it a little bit on his show, yeah. but I just left that off. Uh, David has good. And you know, I think he has a, a unique perspective. Uh, Don, you got tipped $10 by Mark on Rockfin. He says, I'd like to see how many kids diagnosed with dyslexia actually aren't just being taught in a very conducive, in a way to conducive to their learning style, visual, uh, kinesthetic, etc." So yeah, I, I'd like to see that too. I don't, I don't, our Prussian model school system. Well, not- thank you. Thank you, Mark. John one, four, nine says guard is getting done sick as guards. Now I just have a, uh, I get this dry cough all the time. Don't worry. It's not COVID or anything. And uh, it's, I, I get it a lot of times, especially I've been talking. So it's not, uh, and I have not been around guard. I don't know. How's guard doing? <laughs> He's doing better as of today. It'll be better tomorrow. I'm sure. Let's see. The cops are going to be given a license. To, oh yeah. I, I did hear that. Uh, was it, who was I talking to about that? No, it was he? I think it was Bob Wilson, but uh, and wise Wolf brings, I don't know if he's talking about this story, but I did see a story right before I came on the air where, the Supreme Court ruled that police, they gave police the green light to shoot at drivers that may represent a risk to other drivers. Wow. Now think about that. Now, if, if a driver's out driving and it looks like, you know, they're driving recklessly, if a cop shoots him, what's going to happen? I mean, isn't he going to be more likely to cause damage? I mean, what? I mean, and that's the Supreme Court. I mean, ah, this system's crazy. Ah, we're just about out of time. I, thanks, everybody. Uh, thanks, uh, Mark, for the tip. And thanks, everybody, for uh, on uh, YouTube and Rockfin. And, uh, you know, we'll be talking to you guys tomorrow on America Unplugged at 12 noon on this same fine channel. And I'm sure we'll have lots to talk about then. So uh, thanks, Tony. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I protest. <laughs>